CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is sponsored by Zengo. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to the hash. Happy Monday. You're here watching us on Coindesk TV. Maybe a bit later, you're listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We appreciate you either way. I'm Zach. That's Wendy. Jen is over there. Will is here. We're talking about Kanye in the Satoshi Nakamoto hat. That's not our first story of the day. (laughs) We're going to do something I wish a was. bit more drab, but also noteworthy and interesting. I'm going to toss it straight to Wendy for some news on MasterCard and Paxos. What do you got? Yay. I'm so excited to be back. And I think we should just do a show on Kanye. I think that would be awesome because I've got some really hot takes. Anyways, this is really important news and actually really great for our industry. And I will explain why. MasterCard joins with Paxos to help banks offer crypto trading. So they basically want to partner with Paxos and offer crypto or I guess a crypto source program that will help banks offer trading to users, allowing folks to buy, hold, sell cryptocurrency. And it also looks like MasterCard is going to deal with all of the regulatory compliance, provide AML, KYC, identity monitoring services. And the thing that I think that is great about this is I feel like crypto companies don't necessarily have enough funding to really fight against the SEC or ask for what type of... They have a hard time dealing with compliance because the SEC doesn't give these types of guidelines. But when you have a big company like MasterCard behind them, I feel like this is going to help get some kind of push in the right direction. However, one thing I am curious about is if they are going to offer like FDIC insurance and how that will work. I want to toss this over to Will for a very sassy and spicy take. Sassy and spicy on Monday morning talking about MasterCard. You're not going to get that today. (laughs) Indeed, that was good to see you again. Uh, yeah, this is road to boring. I wish Adam was on the show today. I wish he could uh, boot Zach off, get Adam on here today. We need we need hey. to talk about the boring stuff. And it is boring, right? It's Axos just holding someone else's Bitcoin. It's not exciting. And the Kanye story, that's exciting. It is important, though, like Zach noted off the top. like This is what brings people into crypto. There's a lot of latecomers. People came for the fun and the hacks earlier. Now we're getting the boring stuff. And that's what happens during a bear market. MasterCard has been involved with crypto for a few years now. There's some great uh, Danny Nelson scoops in the past about MasterCard getting involved with crypto. And now they're doing the boring stuff. They're getting Paxos involved. Paxos is a noted stablecoin provider. They also work with a lot of different regulators. 
in order to provide like the most robust stablecoin solution in a lot of people's minds. Not an ad, but I mean, they have a pretty good offering right now. I think that's why MasterCard is going towards them. Zach, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, they also help PayPal get into space. Don't don't forget, man. Paxos is like unsexy, but hella important <laughs> in my opinion. We, we did a profile of uh, uh, Chad Gasgorilla back in like 2020 on like the most influential list. And he was sort of like, you know, that, that fintech whisper, right? This is a long time uh, mm-hmm. Bitcoiner mm-hmm. guy who's been doing all sorts of stuff dating way back. There's some good stories in that piece. Go check it out. But the fact that he has the ear of some of these big, giant financial brands is absolutely worth noting and continues them sort of racking up some wins on that front, right? It's not splashy. It's not sexy. Maybe it's not, you know, all that, I don't know, interesting to the Bitcoin OGs. But in terms of getting these big financial brands take that first step and then that second step and then even potentially more down the crypto rabbit hole, Paxos has had a pretty good track record of doing that. So it's certainly worth noting that MasterCard is going to be doing this in a pretty meaningful way. But it's also to Jen for her thoughts on this one for sure. Wendy, I need to update you. The road to boring is also an exciting one. So don't be too thrown off by what What? Will said there. (laughs) Yeah, it is an exciting but boring road to the end. Mm. So for me, this story comes back to trust, right? We talk about how we're going to get people into crypto. We have all of these headlines that make people read them and think like, number one, I don't want to lose my money. Number two, I don't want to go to jail. And, you know, a lot of people still trust their banks, whether they should or not. That is up for debate. A lot of people trust MasterCard. They know if their MasterCard gets stolen, they're going to get their money back. They know that their banks have their back if something should happen to their bank account. And so I just think this makes total sense if we want people to trust the industry, to have these brands that have spent so long building that trust with their consumers to come in. So Wendy, I'm with you. This is an exciting road to boring. I don't think the story talked about any type of like FDIC insurance. And I think that that part is going to be immensely important, especially with all the recent exchange drama we've had, because I know that some exchanges do offer like FDIC insurance, but it has to be the cash that they have in their bank reserves. But a lot of the terms of services didn't correctly display that in language people understood. So I don't know. I think this is absolutely great. And I think that this will help with the next bull run. I don't think it'll bring in the next bull run, but I think it's very, very good. And I'm excited to see because MasterCard has the capital again to figure out what type of regulatory compliance needs to be done. I think that time aspect is key because like this is not entirely dissimilar from what NYDIG had put all of its you know eggs in its basket around, right? And we saw what happened there. Like they were cut, what, like 33% of their staff because it sort of went wrong in the short term. So I think again, for the, for the teams that can build for a longer time horizon, you know, maybe by the next time that this is of interest to the mass market, MasterCard is there to help these banks get in the game a bit sooner than they had been previously able to. So that to me is like potentially quite interesting if that's what this ultimately enables. But hey, we'll toss it to Will. Maybe he's got some spicier stuff in this segment. What do you got? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Round of applause. That was like five solid minutes on banking topics. Like really, really good stuff Monday morning to start off. Let's catch you up on the weekend though. Not everything happens on Monday. Sometimes things happen on Friday and Saturday and we're here to catch you up on this. Ethereum is battling a censorship resistance battle right now. There's this thing called MEV relays, and essentially they're an undergirding part of how Ethereum works, how it sends stablecoins, how it deposits DeFi, how blocks are built, how transactions happen. And there's this debate over if you need to be compliant with international finance regulations. Some people say yes, some people say no. But right now we have a code base that is mostly saying yes. Over the weekend, 51% of validators start to choose to work with uh, OFAC-compliant relays. 
In essence, that means that all these relays or all these validators rather are choosing to go with OFAC compliance over non-OFAC compliance because they want to make more money. You make more money by being compliant in this instance. Traditionally, it's not the case, but it is happening here. Now everyone's wondering, well, is this the future of Ethereum? Is everyone going to be profit incentivized to go and follow the rules, the OFAC rules, and follow international guidance on finance? Or can Ethereum turn back to its more cypherpunk basis and you know, skirt the rules a little bit? A lot of people wanted to skirt the rules. Should be a neutral network for settlement of any type of transaction, just like on Bitcoin. Wendy, I want to throw this one over to you. It's a pretty complex story. But I think at its basis, it's very cypherpunk and very Bitcoin, very crypto-y. Should transactions be allowed to be sent anywhere to anyone? Or should the base layer be able to censor somebody? So I think that transactions should be able to be sent to anyone, anywhere, because I believe operating in a true decentralized economy. However, most people, especially humans, are not capable of doing that because it does require critical thinking and it does require a lot, a lot of maturity. However, we have a lot of these regulations that are coming into play. And let's face it, the people that are building these protocols are absolutely outstanding and they do not want to go do time or get in trouble or get fined because most of them probably have families and they value their lives, they value their livelihood. And I can respect that and I can get behind that. I also do think that the merge over from proof of work to proof of stake was carefully coordinated as a way for the folks that are kind of involved with Ethereum, especially early days, so that they can kind of get away from any type of punishment that they might get into later on for having this decentralized thing. With that being said, if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is probably our best hope for a true decentralized economy because we don't know who the founder is and there's really kind of no one to go after. So I understand why they're going to want to be compliant. But yes, it does go against the cypherpunk movement and the need to operate in a true decentralized economy. And I don't blame them. I have a family. I don't want to do anything wrong and potentially get in trouble and be separated from my kid. Zach? This is a super fascinating topic, and I think like rightly a lot of people are starting to pay more attention to it. I would really put in a plug for uh, a talk by Eric Wall at DevCon. DevCon in Bogota just wrapped up, and he had a very compelling presentation about this and why the Ethereum community needs to sort of rally around uh, some of those foundational principles of uncensorable internet services, right? That's what this comes down to. I think we can zoom out and we can say, okay, OFAC, these are bad guys, these are terrorists, according to the US government. But in a decentralized world, the U.S. government shouldn't necessarily be able to dictate how this software platform operates and to whom it is accessible, right? So zooming out from the particulars of what OFAC and the sanction list is trying to accomplish here, I think we need to be cognizant of is the fact that truly value-neutral platforms probably should exist in some way, shape, or form going into the future. And for a lot of OG crypto people, this is potentially that big moment to rally around some of these issues as Ethereum goes to proof of stake, as the validators operating this, offering these services become known, doxxed in crypto parlance, this is something that is going to become a really interesting issue to watch and see if there's any consensus around that 49% or what I think it's like 43% now who are resisting the imperative to censor some of these transactions from of these wallets that have been flagged by US officials. So this is going to get really super interesting. We saw a little bit of chatter about this right when, when the merge happened. And now we're seeing it kind of bear out with some hard data. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see if this conversation escalates or where it goes from here, uh, but, but time will tell. I definitely want to throw this to Will for his thoughts. Yeah, the interesting thing right now is, one, there's a bunch of teams working on Ethereum that are working on this specific problem, and a lot of them are US-based. And you know, if you're US-based and you're going into OFAC, that might not be great. We just saw uh, two months ago when the Tornado Cash developer was arrested in the Netherlands 
Now he's been in prison for, I think, going on three months, still waiting on some sort of judgment or jury trial and what's going to happen to him. Some of his property has been seized. Like It's not great to be on the wrong side of the law. And especially in this instance, we don't really know what the law is because it's all new stuff. Like No one really knew that tornado cash was bad until they just randomly decreed that they didn't want it anymore. And then they put someone in jail. So for anyone who's developing on Ethereum, I think they're very cognizant of that. They're looking at Tornado Cash and being like, hey, this is a warning. Much like the SEC, when they go and smack down projects and other projects are like, hey, we don't want to touch that anymore. I think you're seeing that with regulation right now around OFAC compliance. And I think the next question, though, as well is, what is the future of this problem? Because right now, the hard stats show that over 50% of validators are choosing to go with the OFAC compliant uh, relays. But they're doing that out of profit incentive. They're not doing it because they necessarily want to be compliant. They're doing it because it makes more money to be compliant at this point. What if it changes the other way? Does it go back and Ethereum is more safe? Or is it just like an instance in time where things are going one way versus the other? I think we need a little bit more information to bear fruit in the subject. The last point I'd like to make is, you know, you can still get blocks through that are not OFAC compliant pretty easily. Even if 95% of Ethereum was OFAC compliant, well, 5% of blocks would get through that we're not compliant. And that's still a decent amount of transactions. So we don't quite know where the story is going to wrap up. But like you said, Zach, it's starting to definitely heat up in developer circles. Jen, I'll give it to you for last thought, though. Yeah, you guys covered everything I want to talk about. You know, if we increase censorship more and more, we're just really replicating the same problems we're trying to solve with this technology. So it's just so saddening to see the fact that we still don't have regulation. Obviously, people don't want to go to jail. If people are in jail, we can't continue to build. We can't continue to innovate. And so we have to be compliant. And I feel like we're stuck between this rock and a hard place. And I completely agree. It will be really interesting to watch how this story unfolds. Zengo Crypto Wallet is an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC which, until now, has only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your digital currency, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using the wallet's biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com hash and use code hash to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Coindesk's Women Who Web 3 podcast, your weekly podcast celebrating women supporting women, investing in women, and bridging the gender gap in wealth through Web 3. Each week, we'll be learning from powerful women sharing their insights on topics like creating belonging and inclusivity in the digital spaces, the metaverse, building prosperous Web 3 projects, investing in cryptocurrencies and building wealth. And we have how-tos from founders and builders who have been there and done that, healing sessions to give you the power to overcome imposter syndrome and everything you need to level up in your crypto journey. At the end of each podcast, stick around for some Zen with a relaxing meditation to center you after absorbing all the stories and the knowledge. I'm your host, Cams, and I'm on a mission to empower women across the globe to unlock the unlimited potential and earning power inside themselves through Web3. Whether you're just crypto curious or a crypto connoisseur, this podcast is for you. Let's get it. We are going off to Solana land right now. So Solana's top NFT marketplace, Magic Eden, 
is the latest platform to switch to a no-fee model, meaning that NFT buyers can choose whether or not they pay royalties to creators, and they'll also be waiving their 2% platform fee. So minutes after the announcement on Twitter, people were upset, and Magic Eden hosted a Twitter Spaces almost immediately to field questions. A Magic Eden rep said, we did not want to be in this position, but the market has already spoken in regards to optional market royalties. Wendy, I'm going to pass this off to you. You are a big proponent for, for crypto, solving a lot of creator problems. What do you think of this optional royalty business? I think that it's stupid. And the reason why I think it's stupid, well, let me rephrase that. If, you, if you're a 10,000 generative piece or 8,000 generative piece project, whatever, if you don't want to accept royalties, that's totally fine with me. I don't care. But the problem I do have is with one of one artists. I have a problem with this impacting musicians, creators, authors, writers, anybody that's in the entertainment industry, because it is the most predatory industry I feel like ever. Like They literally are soul-sucking, absolutely terrible. And this is my hill. This is my hill, especially when it comes to NFTs. I really think that NFTs can solve a lot of the problems we're seeing when it comes to for like people in the entertainment industry, creators. So they want to not do that with the Jenner projects and the teams are okay with that and they figure out how to work that out. Good for them. Fantastic. But leave the creators alone. They are here to break away from those third-party oppressive. And I just want them to be able to have a better shot at the industry. And again, this is for my grandpa. This is for my aunt. This is for my ex. This is for all of the musicians in my life that never made it, that were super talented, that had big followings on the internet. And I will always have their backs and make sure my voice is heard in defense of them. You know, in the last story, I said we're recreating some of the same problems the technology is trying to solve. And it mm -hmm. feels like that's what's happening here again. To your point, Wendy, X2Y2 was one of the first marketplaces to do this. And they made a point to say that the one-of-one one NFTs would not be affected by this optional royalty. So those one-of-ones would remain protected and buyers would have to pay royalties back to the creators. But Will, I'm going to pass it off to you for your cynical take on NFTs. <laughs> yeah, here's my spicy take. This is so predictable. This is what happens in every market. It's always a race to the bottom. And they included that in the article, right? There's a nice little comment from someone in Magic Eden. It's a race to the bottom. Sorry, like that's how marketplaces work. Every single marketplace you're going to find, they're going to keep reducing fees so you can keep users on top of it. And I think the most important thing here is it's NFT buyers are the ones who are creating this, right? That 2% fee, they don't want to pay that. They want to pay whatever the art is worth. And so they're going to try to push against it and go to the marketplace where there is no fee. And that's why this whole other alternative NFT marketplace scene popped up, right? OpenSea was dominating, but OpenSea had higher rates. Other spots had higher rates. And then this other group, second group of marketplaces popped up. And now they are really taking a whack at everybody else. You saw us in DeFi markets as well, right? You know, everyone wanted to be on Uniswap and then other alternatives popped up that were slightly cheaper, had better token incentives, and then Uniswap had to fight back. And Uniswap won because it was able to get enough volume, it was able to change its tokenomics, it did an airdrop, things like that. So now we're just seeing the back and forth, right? And at the end of the day, it's going to be for the consumer, the person buying an NFT. How can they get the best price for whatever they want to purchase? Whatever that is, whatever that system looks like, that's where you're going to continue seeing. Yes, I agree. Like it's great for you know, royalty to happen. It's great for an artist to continue getting paid to the NFT moves from person to person. But on the smart contract level, even like there's an option to turn it off. So why not turn it off? Wendy, I'll throw it back up to you. 
I don't know. I think that they could have used this as a really great marketing opportunity to maybe do like, cause I'm, when I think about trading NFTs, I think about eBay cause I was an eBay seller for a really long time to pay for a community college. I think that they could have used this as a great marketing opportunity. Like if you hold X amount of tokens or you're holding this piece this month, or, you know, these members get no royalties or no fees for a particular time period. And they probably could have done something like that to keep both sides a piece. That's what I would have done if I was consulting for them. I would have advised them to do that instead of just removing everything. Cause now we've created this kind of like we're in a bear market. People aren't really making a whole lot of money anyways. We've created this kind of weird transition thing. And I don't know. I just thought there could be more creative ways to execute this. I think it's hard out there. And I think it exacerbates the race to the market, the race to the bottom that's captured here in this story, right? This marketplace is responding to market pressure. There's not a lot of money to go around here in the bear market. And things are such that Magic Eden sort of defend its position as the leading NFT marketplace on Solana is having to make this unpopular move, especially among creators. It's going to be interesting to see for me if this inspires people to vote with their feet and go elsewhere to trade their JPEGs on Solana. Uh, I should say elsewhere. I think Magic Eden is also rolling out uh, other networks as well. But clearly, this is the leading NFT marketplace on Solana. And the fact that they're responding to sort of market pressure and rolling this out seems to me like sort of one of those bear market things, right? Like there's just not a lot of money to go around. And if we're going to impose royalties on people out here who are already hesitant to spend their dwindling crypto reserves, you know, maybe that's the decision that, that had to be made. But curious for Jen's last thoughts on this one. Yeah, you know, it reminded me when that X2Y2 story came out, Beeple tweeted and he said, there's zero way to force royalties technologically. So creators should build a group of supporters who are willing to pay royalties to them. And so he's really saying that creators need to get out there and build those communities just like they did in Web2 and incentivize them to want to give back to the artist. I think that is difficult. I think it's very, very difficult. But Magic Eden did say that this isn't a permanent thing. So hopefully we can get some middle ground, Wendy. Maybe maybe they'll give you a call for some consulting and we can keep everyone happy on it's both sides It's a permanent thing. <laughs> I agree. Well, well, yeah. Foreshadow. It's a permanent thing. I'm just listening to the message. I'm going to continue to be optimistic about this. All right. Who's got the last story? I got the last story. I got the last story. It's not necessarily especially optimistic. So, Jen, if you want to like just earmuff it for this one, that's. I'll just go. We can just black out this square. I'll head out. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's nothing that we don't know already. But according to company documents seen by the Wall Street Journal, things are not going so great with Meta's metaverse effort, right? Numbers are down. They're revising their estimates downward. (laughs) Things aren't great. It's not looking good. The numbers are bad. There's some details shared in this report and uh, among other sites that picked it up. And yeah, I don't know what's going to make the metaverse click. I think that's really the question. We saw some dismal numbers uh, over in Decentraland that were disputed a bit, which we should probably discuss that a little bit later on today. But this one seems par for the course as metaverse again continues to sort of fail to find its footing. So you know what, Jen, I'm going to toss it to you for your initial thoughts on this one, because this is something that's been closely watched. Obviously, Facebook was seen as sort of the flag flagship of the metaverse push. And so far, numbers aren't looking great. What do you think? Yeah, so that target number they talked about was 500,000 active users by the end of the year. And I bet that that number was set during the bull market when they were hiring 10,000 people to build this whole platform out. Everyone was very excited. And then things kind of took a turn. I was honestly surprised to see that they have under 200,000 active users compared to those numbers we spoke about last week, which was the Sandbox and Decentraland having about 38 active 
active users on the platform. And so I was surprised. It's more than I was expected to see on Meta's platform. I think that Meta and the industry at large is yet to find that CVP, like the value proposition for the metaverse that will keep people coming back today. We're all thinking like in 10 years from now, but what's going to keep people in metaverses today? I don't know. I don't know what that is. And I think the person or platform that figures it out will will win. But like you all said, we're in a bear market right now. I don't know what's going to keep people coming back, what's going to keep people interacting with smart contracts in metaverses. And my last thought on this is the VR headset to, to play in this world costs $400. And given the state of the economy right now, $400 is a lot for people to get in here and test something that is very much still in beta. So those are all of my takes on this story. Wendy, what do you think? All right, a lot, lot to digest here. So first and foremost, we know that crypto generally operates on a four-year cycle due to Bitcoin. Yes, that can change in the future. However, it hasn't changed yet. Next, why aren't these companies planning for bear markets? It's literally not that hard. Why are you not holding extra reserves, whatever it is? <laughs> then on top of it, you're going to let people go during the bear market when you actually should be spending time building things. And I also don't like titles like this and these companies that project these numbers because they're, they don't take into account outliers. And it feels like they're just using like statistical reports that I think statistics are not very accurate, whatever. That's a story for another time. But especially if you're charging somebody $400 for a VR set to participate in something that should almost kind of be for free, because let's face it, face meta allows you to, you know, utilize their social media platform for free. However, you are sacrificing your freedom and your privacy. Another story for a different time. But I don't know what they were thinking is, is in terms of that. Like, are these people in these big companies so detached from reality to what the middle class, lower middle class and poor are actually dealing with? Because we're in a really bad recession in the United States. I'm not sure what they were thinking. I think that this is ridiculous. And I just think that it's just ridiculous. That's all. I'm done for the day. <laughs> I'll pick it up. I mean, I think Zuck's big bet didn't work out. And I think most people saw that coming, right? He, he changed the name of the entire company towards Meta so they could pivot in towards this. Like They went both feet first in the largest tech company in the United States. They have nearly 4 billion users across all their applications. And they pivoted entirely towards this, throwing a lot of money at it. Remember, they're going to hire like 10,000 people to build the Metaverse. It hasn't really worked out. And that's pretty sour note on Mark Zuckerberg's record. Of course, they have enough money to keep this floating. Like, There's not going to be any problems about that. But it is a big culture moment for Facebook and a big culture moment for anyone who's trying to build in the metaverse. If this large corporation couldn't figure it out with infinite dollars, what does that mean for small startups that are just trying to figure this out and trying to get users? We had a nice story a few weeks ago about Sandbox and a few other uh, metaverse-first platforms that are built in startups, talking about the number of users in these applications. It's hard to say because a lot of things depends on like how you count things. And so there's some additional reporting about that. For sure, everyone should go back and check out that article. Pretty interesting read. The takeaway from it was not a lot of people are using these things, though, even though they have very high valuations. I think we continue to see that with Facebook, whether they be valued by the token or by equity. Not a lot of people are interested in using this Metaverse product yet because it's not really built out. To Jen's point, right? Like, what is the killer application in the Metaverse? Doesn't seem to be anything. You know, there's a gambling hall Zach likes to talk about, but that seems to be the only I was thing anyone really up. has an interest in going towards. Go gamble. <laughs> Go gamble some stuff. Gamble. Yeah, no, that Decentraland <laughs> story that Coindesk uh, published that caused a lot of controversy and con conversation. I, I kind of felt like that small number was a bit too good to be true. It was something like 38 daily active users. 
And there was a lot of pushback from the teams behind Decentraland saying, okay, that DAP radar data is counting contract calls, basically, rather than people who are just lingering around. So instead of 38, it's like, I don't know, 8,000, but still 8,000, like a really small number in terms of people who are using these things. And I think that's true across the Web3 space. If we look, if we look long and hard at sort of usership numbers in a, in, a, in a real way, definitely interesting to see a bit more reporting coming out, not just in the Web3 metaverse space, but in the Web2 metaverse space with Facebook's efforts over there. All right, that's it for the show today. It's Monday. We'll be back again tomorrow, Tuesday. I'm Zach. That's Wendy. There's Jen. Peace to Will. We'll be back. Thanks for being here. Check us out on the podcast network and check us out tomorrow and we'll see what we have to say about all the latest news. All right, that's it. That's all we got. See everybody. Thanks for being here. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.